join me in lifting up voices to
just uh, one that I really, I just really feel is a, a prayer with music to it, and uh, I just hope you all join me in singing this prayer.
Awesome. Oh, I was going to take this. Um, first, I want to share um, that uh, we know, at least for my kids, uh, September 1st, school gets started. If you are in college, probably uh, the quarter is going to get started soon within the next couple of weeks. Um, or if you homeschool, homeschooling is going to start soon or whenever you want it to start. <laughs> and uh, uh, teachers are getting back into the groove and a lot of probably most school districts um, are going to be in person again. So I just want to lift up prayers for our teachers, for our kids, um, for the people who make decisions, um, also our healthcare providers as, you know, a lot of the you know, a lot of cases have been going up and they're starting to get overwhelmed again. And so we just want to lift all those things up to prayer. We don't know things, some things, and um, we, we just have to see about um, public safety. And, and we're continuing as a leadership, our leadership's continuing to monitor things. So we'll keep talking about things and seeing how we should respond to it. So. That's all to say, let's pray, I don't know, and uh, kids are starting soon, so hopefully, you know, they get to see their friends and hang out with their teachers in person again, and um, that we don't have a, another, like, pulling back or something, or schools closing. I, I need that, personally, as a parent. But, uh, um, so I'm gonna pray. God, thank you for today, and thank you uh, for all who've gathered, whether in person or online, to worship you. And we, uh, we strive to be, we long to be a family um, that represents um, you, your name, who you are, what you're doing in the world. And so draw us closer to your heart, transform us, if there be anything in us that keeps us from um, being who you want us to be. I pray that you gently graciously and compassionately um, teach us and change us. Um, lift up all the families, all the teachers, all the schools, administrators, workplaces that are thinking about uh, what to do, coming back together in person school, um, all that that entails. And just for our nation, our continued prayer for our nation and um, for unity, for um, the truth um, to go forth, and for everyone's values um, to be negotiated, and um, and for us to find paths moving forward. In Jesus' name, Amen. We are continuing uh, in our series, and I'm having fun in this series, so. I'd probably have fun if there's one person sitting in this room. I'd probably be preaching out loud and yelling and screaming. No, I'm not going to yell and scream. But uh, uh, we're in our series, Hum, Strange Stories in the Bible. And uh, the passage that we are going to be looking at is Luke um, 18, 20 through, through 27. And I'm actually going to start at 18. It's not going to be on the slide, uh, that first section. But I, I want to start at 18 because I think it contains the whole conversation between Jesus and this young ruler. And um, so I'm going to start by reading the passage. Luke 18, 18 through 27. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. 
Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. What makes this passage uh, qualify for this sermon series on strange passages of the Bible? Right? What makes this a strange story? For one, we're talking about camels going through the eye on needle. What is, what's up with that? Why does Jesus use this metaphor, this image? What does it actually mean? What is this about? Is, does it mean it's impossible? Um, and the other thing is, um, that's also strange about this passage, is that Jesus raises a very awkward topic of conversation for us today. Um, and that he pushes a very socially uncomfortable and uncouth button, right? And that's money, 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 right? The Johnny Manziel, like, show me the money, right? And as I was thinking about this, I was like, how can I kind of bring this to the forefront for us? And um, I think about this all the time, and I'm wondering if you guys think about this, but my question all the time, because I like cars and I like nice things and I like my technology, what is the ceiling, and I'm asking you guys, what is the ceiling for the most expensive car the lead pastor of Renew can drive and remain appropriately living the simple life of the gospel? Right? This is for my own benefit, right? What, how fancy can my car be? How expensive can my car be? Can I drive a Mercedes around and still be appropriate? Would people start whispering like, oh my gosh, Pastor Dave is driving a Mercedes, right? That's, wait, we don't, like, we don't even pay him that much. How much, where's he getting his money, right? Mercedes, Tesla, Tesla truck. Um, what, so that's one of my weird questions I always ask myself. Um, and then how fancy can my wardrobe be before people start whispering about my lifestyle? So the Steck brothers and I always joke um, that they have better shoes than I do. <laughs> so like, they're like, man, the lead pastor can't have worse shoes than the, you know, the staff. You, you got to get better shoes. And there's this Instagram kind of group site called Preacher Sneakers. I don't know. I've mentioned this before. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it before, but... It's just pictures of pastors, most of them in L.A., um, who are into shoes, right? It's shoe culture. So they'll take a picture of the shoes and what the pastor's wearing, and then they'll put, like, a picture of the price that, you know, those, those shoes are going for. So there's some people, pastors, who are wearing, like, $5,000 shoes, Nikes, right? Just collector shoes or, you know, these are $800. And I'm like, what, what? What would it be like, well, no one would know, right, if I was wearing an $800 pair of shoes, but if I did, by the way, these are $29.99 at this, in the mall, just not even the expensive kind of Converse also, like the cheap kind. Um, but see what I did there? Just even that, right? As, you know, when some of us in, in this congregation, we receive or acquire nice things, right? Think about when you get nice things or buy something nice for yourself. You might even feel ashamed of the things that you have, right? When it's pointed out for, uh, by others. Because we fear being seen as materialistic or at worst being tone deaf to the world, what's going out there, how people are struggling financially. Um, so if someone says to me, nice shoes, Dave, because they're really nice shoes, and, and I, I can feel that shame. And so what is my response? Right? My response is, oh, you know what? I got these on sale. They were on clearance, right? I have to qualify why I got these things, right? Nice house, Sims. You know, people, we own a house in Seattle, and 
people are like, oh, nice house. It's in a nice neighborhood. Oh, you know, they don't ask how much it costs because that would be rude, right? Um, but I always say, oh, you know what? We got the worst house in the best neighborhood we could get, right? And you know what? This is actually, it's a secret, a manufactured home. So its value actually decreases. Why do I do that? Why do we do that when we have nice things? We say, oh, you know, Dave, nice private helicopter. Oh, you know what? I got, I hit the jackpot at the Goodwill. There was just a helicopter there, and I picked it up at Goodwill, so that's why we have a helicopter, right? We feel embarrassed. We feel ashamed if you have any sort of, like, kind of humility or, like, I'm a Christian, I'm living a simple lifestyle, or, you know, I'm aware, I'm not, I don't want to be tone deaf, I don't want to be on the hashtag first world problems, like, hashtag, like, I'm self-conscious about that. And you know what? Money remains in the realm of privacy, right? We kind of follow the don't ask, don't tell aspect um, of each of our lives when it comes to money in the church. Case in point, during greeting time, if someone was new and we came up, you were talking to someone, oh, what do you do? You know, oh, I'm, I'm this or that, I'm a nurse, I'm a, uh, a banker, whatever. And then we ask, oh, what's your annual salary, right? How much did you buy your home for? People would be like, whoa, 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 right? That's just something you don't ask about. You don't ask about what's in your bank account, what's in that person's bank account. You don't ask about how much that person makes because that's private. That's something that we don't touch. We don't, you know, ask people about, right? And we can even have small groups and be, talk about community. We talk about community in our churches and life together. We want to share life together and we want to have accountability and small groups and really share our lives with one another and we will share in those small groups our deepest, darkest secrets, right? Our, our struggles with sin, whether it's greed or covetousness or lust even or I'll share my craziness, right? But we seldom talk about money, right? We seldom talk about money because that's private. That's private. And so that's just an interesting thing to me. Like, why is something that we know, because we watch the news, we see our friends' lives, we see the scandals out there, we read the papers. Money is a big factor in what creates scandal, right? Um, uh, uh, where corruption, corruption surrounds money and power and stuff like that. So why don't we, why isn't it an open part of our discipleship, right? Or our sharing lives together when it can be such a huge stumbling block. Are you with me, church? It's really, really interesting. Um, so when it comes to money, it's hands-off. It's private information, like, you know, personal health information. It's personal money, PMI, personal money, or um, mortgage insurance for someone. <laughs> and yet... Um, as I, it's private in the, even in the church, but as I'm discussing this with you, we know that the big three, right? The big three, if you watch the news, if you read the papers, you read your blogs, uh, the current events, and you read about scandals and corruptions and systemic oppression and leaders falling, the big three Chances are that the big three um, is involved in that. And you know what the big three is? Sex, money, and rock and roll, no, and power, right? Sex, money, and power, right? We hear about scandals in the government, um, in the corporate world, and even in the church, maybe especially in the church, all the time we read about scandals and people abusing power or 
uh, bad choices that leaders make um, or systemically, systemic dysfunctionality within an organization. Our favorite apologetics, right, person falling because of sexual scandal. And it usually has to do with sex, money, or power, or a combination of them together. Um, they kind of blend together and they kind of work hand in hand. So I, in looking at the Gospels and Jesus, how he dealt with these big three, I'm going to, I think we're dealing with money in this passage, um, but if we think about sex, for instance, you know, we think about the interactions that Jesus had with, for instance, the woman who was caught in adultery and she's about to get stoned. Um, by these religious leaders, all males. Um, and he, what, what happens? He says, he was sinned, cast the first stone. Right? And everyone walks away because, yeah, we've all sinned. And then he addresses the woman face to face um, with all that she is and says, women, woman, go and sin no more. Right? So they're in Jesus' interaction with her, there's both an affirmation of who she is, like you're a child of God and you're covered by grace. Right? And nothing you've done is worse than what anyone else has done. Like there's a double standard in this society. And Jesus is calling that out. But at the same time, he's saying to her, but live differently. You know, go. Like live out of that grace. Go and sin no more. Power, right? We know the disciples were arguing amongst themselves. Who is the greatest of us, right? Who's like the second in charge? After Jesus, Peter, John, James, who is it? And Jesus turns to them, you idiots, right? You know, if you want to be great, if you want to be first, right, in my kingdom, you have to be last, right? If you want to be a powerful, great person, you must first be servant of all, right? That's how Jesus, and Jesus, right, in his own life, in his own uh, crucifixion and suffering and resurrection, embodied what it means to lay down one's life, right? To lay the power he could take. He, if anyone had legitimacy, and authority. It was Jesus to take up his power and use his power to save himself. But Jesus lays it down. And that's what his call to his disciples are, is to lay down your power, right? If you want to be powerful, if you want to be strong, be a servant. So what about this man? Says it's a, a young ruler. A lot of commentators talk about he's maybe a leader in a synagogue. Um, and actually, this is the second kind of dialogue in Luke that's very similar, that follows the same pattern. So I think it was Luke 11 where Jesus is talking to one of the experts of the law. Guy asked the same question, like, what must I do to be saved? A listing of commandments. And, but in that situation, you get at the end the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Wanting to justify himself, the man says, well, who is my neighbor, right? And Jesus tells the um, Samaritan, the Good Samaritan story. In this one, the man asks a similar question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So it's interesting, first of all, eternal life, like different gospel writers use different metaphors or images or analogies for heaven, like whether it's kingdom of heaven, John uses eternal life, life everlasting. Um, it can be the kingdom of heaven, heaven. Um, here Luke uses, uh, what must I do to have eternal life, to be saved, you know, to to live forever with God, to go to heaven, all of those things. Um, and 
I can't help but think that this person wants to have a blueprint, right? Just because I've been a leader long enough to know that I can't just lay out a vision or a goal or a dream because I'm inevitably going to get an email or a question, right? How are we going to get there? Right? What are you going to do to implement this? And that's awesome. That's amazing, right? I get it from MacGill all the time, right? Uh, great idea, but what are you going to do? What are the steps? And that's amazing. That's what makes the church the church. This man wants a blueprint, right? What do I have to do to get eternal life? If it's me, I'm like, tell me the minimum requirements, right? Give me the exact prerequisites. Perhaps some of us would be asking me because we're slick and we want to know the system. We want to know the rules of the game. Um, or some of us are just lazy procrastinators, right? We're lazy, so we want to know what's the bare minimum that I have to do to get by, <laughs> right? Just tell me that. What's the least that I have to do to make the cut? Tell me, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? All of this seems to me to be about control in one way or another, right? How do we manage ourselves and our resources and our efforts in order to gain heaven, in order to be justified, in order to be okay in the sight of God, in the sight of people? Another way to look at this man's question um, is how he sets up the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? When we inherit something, right? You're part of a will. You, you had a great aunt who passes away and she bequeaths, you know, a car, her old-fashioned antique car to you. I inherited a car from my aunt. But in, inherit, inherit, inherent, and inherit, inherent in the word inherit, um, I should have chosen a different word, um, is that you don't have to do anything to inherit something, right? Like by nature, it's a gift given to you, not because of what you do, because, but because of who you are, right? Who you're related to, you're, you're related to this person, you're a son or daughter or grandson of this person, and so they give this to you, you inherited. You didn't have to do anything about it. So the irony is the setup, the man saying within itself, Right? It contradicts itself, or it's an oxymoron, right? What must I do to inherit? Right? You don't do anything to inherit anything. It's given to you. But it tells, it kind of betrays what kind of system or mindset that this man is under. What do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to inherit? What do I have to do to live forever? And we know, theologically, the answer is, there's nothing that you can do to be saved. There's nothing that you work and, like, accomplish in order to gain eternal life, right? Salvation is by faith alone, right? By the grace of God, not of our works, but because of Jesus Christ and his gift to us so that none of us, I'm not even quoting this scripture right, but conglomerating lots of scriptures together. but So none of us can boast, right? It's not about us. It's about God. And it is about us in that we're children of God. We're inheritors, right? And we get this gift because of identity, because of who we are and not what we do. And if only that could sink in, Right? It's like the simplest lesson to know and learn, but the hardest to actually execute, right? I'm loved by God and loved unconditionally, and it's by God's grace that I'm saved, right? I could save so much stress and heartache if I, that really sunk into me because everything about me is what 
do I have to do? Right? I grew up like that because I don't know if it's like Asian shame or like duty. It's like, what do I got to do? I got to get A's. I got to do this perfectly. I got to dress this way. I got to look this way. I can't talk this way, right? You're representing the family. You disgrace us. Ah, ah, ah. And it's just in me. It's in our country, right? We come out of the Protestant work ethic, right? Like, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Like, hard work. Anyone who does hard work and has a goal and sets their dream on it, dream, sets their mind to it, you can gain wealth. You can rise up. You can turn your fortunes around, right? Work. Do. What can we do to get a good life? What can we do to have eternal life? Are you with me, church? Interestingly, just two chapters before this in uh, Luke 69, Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So according to this, according to Jesus' own words, having wealth and using wealth seems clearly from what Jesus says not bad in and of itself, right? And so this is the flip, the, the, the flip question is like, is it bad or sinful to make money, to have money, to be wealthy, right? Really is what Jesus is saying, like is God biased against rich people? We've heard that God has a preferential um, heart for the poor, right? So what is, does God have a preferential bias, prejudice, hate for the rich? Like, is Jesus literally saying, rich people, it's impossible for you to get to heaven, right? What, at what level am I wealthy and I'm, I'm rich? Like, that's that question, right? Seeking to justify myself. Like, what is the max amount of car I can drive before it's like, I can't justify it, right, as a Christian? And I feel like that that's the wrong question, but I don't want to let us off the hook necessarily. Does that make sense? We've got to hold this intention because Jesus did say it. Um, but we see in, that, uh, in Luke 16:9 that, you know, Jesus is talking about using money, use money shrewdly, right? Use unholy worldly wealth to make friends for the kingdom. Right? And then you will be welcome. Right? Use your money to win people's souls. Then you'll be in, you'll have eternal life. You'll be in the eternal heavens. Money in itself seems to be, from Jesus' perspective, neutral, right? After all, it's just the love, love of money that's the root of all evil. So it's Jesus saying, if you're rich, then it's impossible to be saved. And some who approach this passage will argue that really what Jesus is saying is that it's really hard for a rich person to get into heaven, right? So there's, there's some commentators who have argued that there was a gate in the walls of Jerusalem that was called the Needle Gate. And this gate was especially narrow. So, so much so that carriages going in and out, it, only one could go through width-wise. So it was one way when it came to carriages going in and out. So they're saying Jesus is alluding to the needle gate, right? It's easier for, you know, you to go through the needle gate with a big wide load, like one of those trucks that's a wide load, it's easier for you to go through the needle gate than for a rich person to go into heaven. Basically, it's really hard, but not impossible. Another take is in recognizing the Greek word for needle, I have a needle, sounds very similar to the word for rope, right? So the, they would say, it's not literally an eye of a needle, 
First of all, one of my questions is, did they actually have needles like for sewing back then? Uh, I don't know what they look like. But the argument is, if it's rope, then you know, it's a loop that you make from a rope. And so it'd be really hard still to get a camel through that. But hey, it's possible, but very hard. My response to this is, why? Like, why? That's a waste of time. Like, what's the point of arguing that it's really hard and not impossible? I just feel like Jesus is basically saying, whether it's hyperbole or not, it's impossible. The whole point is that it's impossible. Why waste time with this? Aren't we just trying to interpret Jesus' words on our own terms? Right? Are we seeking to justify ourselves and appease perhaps the wealthy folks in our congregations, not this congregation, in our like general congregations out there, uh, because they keep the lights on and they're paying the pastor's pension? Right? Why not just see it for what it is? Jesus is saying it's impossible. It's impossible. Strange. It's impossible for a rich person to get into heaven. It's impossible for a powerful person to get into heaven. This is a lordship conversation. And what I mean by lordship is who is lord in your life, right? Who is number one in your life? Are you trusting in the Lord your God fully and putting no idols ahead of you? Right? So if we, when we look back on this passage, and also actually the one in Luke 11, Jesus conveniently, when he says, you need to keep the commandments, and then Jesus lists the commandments. And in Luke 11, the, the uh, religious law legal leader lists the commandments. Um, that he's kept. But in both situations, they're not all the commandments, right? You know, you guys know the Ten Commandments. I, I don't know if anyone can list them by heart. But Jesus lists only about, I think it's five here. And they're all only the second half of the Ten Commandments, right? They're all the ones that have to do with people-to-people -people relationships, right? So... Do not murder, do not steal, do not cover your neighbor's wife, do not, uh, I don't know, <laughs> know them all. I had them pulled up. Uh, you know the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not give false witness, and of course, honor your father and mother, right? Are those all the commandments? No, it's just people to people. What are the ones that he leaves out? The ones he leaves out are the first part, right? I, the Lord, am your God. I delivered you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourselves idols, a carved image or likeness of anything that is in heaven. And you shall not take the name of your Lord, your God, in vain. And here, uh, number four, I think, is a big one, right? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What do all those, those, uh, those commandments have in common? What Jesus lists is the people-to-people -people commandments. What's left out is the people-to-God commandments, right? And they're commandments that you can't necessarily check it off. Right? Check off a list and say, I did that. Like most of us, when it comes to our neighbors, can check off, uh, I, I didn't kill my neighbors. I didn't kill anyone. Right? I never stole from my neighbors. I never committed adultery. Right? Uh, most of us can check those off. I don't give false witness. Like check, 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 check. It's easy to check those off. But the first four the ones that come are about putting the Lord our God first in our life, not worshiping other things, right? And keeping the Sabbath holy, 
which means it's important for us to rest because God rested even in creating the world. And when we rest in a rhythm, right, rest from our work week or work rhythms, that means we could be striving, we could be working to do, 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 but we're keeping the Sabbath holy because we're trusting that God will provide for us even if we give up on a day of work. Does that make sense? It has to do with trust and relationship in God. Trust and relationship in God. And you can't necessarily check that off, right? I can't go to my wife, I love you because, well, she would think, yes, that is why you love me, because I did the dishes, I made the bed, I folded, did all the laundry. That means I'm done being a husband, right? I've, I've achieved love for you, so I can go do whatever I want, right? Her gift is, her uh, love language is service, which I think, oh man, that's like the hardest one. Why does your love language have to be service? But that's another story. <laughs> it's like, why can't it be about words? Like, I'm good at words and affirming. Right? I could do that. He's like, no, clean the toilet. <laughs> but trusting God and being in relationship with God is so, it's so relational, right? It's so much more than a checklist. It's like a lifestyle. It's our orientation. How do you orient your life? Do you orient your life around this? Do you orient your life around your children? Do you orient your life around family? Are you orienting your life around career? Are you orienting your life around your hobbies? Right? What are you orienting your life around? And according to the commandments, it's orient your life around God. The Lord your God is one. Don't put anything gods before me. Don't make any idols. Right? Orient your life around God. Amen? Uh, Jesus is a mass, master, um, I don't know how to put it, converser, right? Or Jesus knows how to push the right buttons. Or Jesus knows the, the core issue. Whenever he's in a conversation with someone, he's always getting to the core issue. After all, he's God, right? He can see it, right? I know people have discernment, the gift of discernment, but I think Jesus may be like a 90, like an infinity, and some of people we know might be like an 85 in discernment. But Jesus uh, knows the core issues, and we see that when he says, he asks another question. Right? Or he says, one thing you still lack. Well, he set it up even before that, like by just naming half the commandments. Right? But then he said, one thing you still lack. Because the guy's like, I've done this from, since I was a boy. That's easy. Go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Talk about going to the core issue. And what does the scripture say? The text says, the man became really sad because he was very wealthy. The man became really sad because he was really, really wealthy. Like, here's the bottom line. And Jesus knew how to push that point. Like, you are very wealthy, and that wealth is very important to you. And so I'm going to ask you to give it all up and see what your response is. And the man became sad. And for most of us, we struggle because we think the story ends there. We think the story ends there. Um, 
in other kind of iterations of the story, and in Luke 11, I believe, uh, or in other iterations, the man walks away, walks away sad. But after this, it's the disciples who ask, well, Jesus says, it's hard, that's where Jesus says, it's harder for a camel going to go through an eye of a needle, eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven, Right? The disciples are perturbed by this, right? As most of us are, where we're like, what is the answer? Is Jesus saying rich people can't go to heaven? Is Jesus saying wealth is sinful? And the disciples say, but, but, right? They take Jesus' impossibility for face value and says, but then who can be saved? Who? And inherent in that is a recognition that all people are rich, right? Most people are rich. We're wealthy in some way or another. Who can be saved? And Jesus replied, you know, with man, this is impossible. With people, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And I want to draw out the whole relational piece to you because oftentimes we dwell in the realm when it comes to our faith of legal, of like, what are the rules? What's the manual? What do I need to do to inherit, to be a good person, to have, be a good disciple? What must I do? What must I do? When the question, the real question is, who do I belong to? Right? Who do I go to? Who am I in relationship with? And we see this kind of setup, like in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, right? And there's all these ethical, like, you know, it's not, you've heard it said, adultery. I say even if you look at someone with lust, you're committing adultery. It's like Jesus is saying, you know, I'm actually raising the bar Right? And then he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What's the natural question from the disciple? I know I asked it when I was in college looking at this scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. Who can be saved then? You're saying I'm supposed to be perfect? Who? 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 And then all my Asian shame and all my, like, perfectionism, like, came out. Like, oh, my gosh, I got to start listing things. I'm not doing this right. Oh, what? Ah, ah. But it's about relationship. And the disciples demonstrate what the next move is for people. What if this young, rich person, instead of saying, instead of just being sad and being like, I'm wealthy, oh, too bad. If the wealthy person said, man, then can I be saved? Like, what does this mean for me? I, it's hard, it's difficult. I can't let go of this. What, do you, what are you talking, what, what, what do you want me to do? Right, and the answer, with you, right, you on your own, you can't do it. You can't do it on your own. But let me, through the power of the Holy Spirit, change you, transform you, and show you the steps, right? The baby steps that you need to take. Like what it really is means to put the kingdom first in your life. You know, um, growing up, I oftentimes saw God as a strict father, right? You know, uh, a stern father. So, so this would play out in like weird ways when it came to prayer. Like, you know, I need to be good with God before I come to prayer and ask for things, right? I need to like scrub myself down, my soul, scrub my soul down, and not have made my parents mad for like the last month, and then I could pray. Or, 
I need to like come with my eyes down like before God and be like, God. And really, that, that changed a lot over time as I got to know Jesus more and deepened my relationship with God. Like my picture of God changed less from a, like a, a stern person who's ready to punish me to like, man, God, you know what? I just want to beat this person up next to me. Like, what must I do? <laughs> with, God, with you, it's impossible. With me, all things are possible, right? How do I have peace in my heart? How do you deal with this rage going on inside me, right? How, how can I have a healthy relationship and ever be married, right? I can do it. I can do it, David. Right? Just, it's about love. It's about identity. It's about being in me and dialoguing with me. Are you with me, church? Amen. So, does this passage mean that we should all sell all that we have right now empty our bank accounts and give it away and come and live in a Christian commune, right? I can't say that that's not what it means. <laughs> it might mean that, right? It's ask God. Like, get a prayer group together and ask God and discern that together. But I think the main takeaway, the main point in this um, is that there's no checklist or thing we can do to gain life, amen? There's nothing that we can do out of our own will and strength to gain the life that Jesus has for us. The question is to come against the wall of impossibility and say, man, and lift our hands to God and say, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that there are things that are difficult in Scripture, and there are lessons that are hard teachings, and we receive that. And we know that you demand, you are a jealous God, and you demand all of us, right, every part of our heart, every nook and cranny of our soul, and that's really hard to do. In fact, that's impossible to do. And so we entrust our hearts and our lives and our faith to you, um, that as we lean into you, you'll gently be, you'll be the gentle surgeon um, to heal us, to, to uplift us, to make us new, um, so that we can be... Um, creatures that reflect your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me if you're able for this last song here. You.
Sing again. 